0: You can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The feed hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com.
1: Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast
2: dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes,
0: your host, John Teeter. I'm John Tito, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I wanted to uh, kind of hit on a couple of notes that we had talked about in a prior podcast, and just you know, I- I've had a couple people reach out to me already asking for more information on compost teas, foliar feeding, etc. As time goes on, I will provide more information to everybody on that type of topic generally speaking, I do not provide services on evaluating soil samples for people other than clients. So if you are a client, I will evaluate your soil. I will give you recommendations, etc. But people that have reached out, I I don't normally do that. And I appreciate people reaching out. And uh, I will support some of the people in that just as time permits. But generally speaking, I do not do that service. Um, There are other agencies that do that. And we'll actually talk with a gentleman today that may be able to support you as well. So let me get uh, Brad Harper on the line. Hey, Brad, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. And uh, we also have Colin back. Colin, what's going on? How's it going? All Thanks right. again, Fab. Yeah, great. So Colin from uh, Legendary Habitats on as well. And uh, the reason why I want to have us all together is because, Colin, you introduced me to Brad. And so I've talked to Brad a bit and gotten familiar with him. He's a wealth of knowledge and great to talk to and really passionate about his products. We'll talk quickly about those. And this isn't about you know promoting Brad's business or products or this is about just sharing, uh, et cetera. And, and I think Brad's kind of one of those individuals that loves helping people and that's kind of the goal here today. So Colin, you utilize some of Brad's products and and I wanna just kind of understand what products did you use? We kind of hit on some of that in the last podcast you and I were together on, but you know, what products did you use at Brad's and uh, you know, did you feel like, you know, there were any impacts as a result to, to Brad's product use, etc.?
1: Yeah. So starting off the, the three main products that I've been using um, for my farm and then many client properties I use them on would be the foliar. Uh, well, actually I take that back. There's actually four main products. Uh, there would be their foliar, foliar product, and then there would be the liquid lime, and then he's also got a dry product, and then you also have a calcium, um, and so those are the four main products that I that I'm using um, on you know basically almost every property right now, depending on soil tests and, and stuff like that. So that those are the the four main ones that I've had the most experience with, um, and obviously Brad can elaborate on some other products he has on you know, getting into problem solving, you know, more soil, um, you know, problems and and finding solutions to, to, uh, you know, mitigate those and and help um, balance everything out. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I think one of the big game changers for me, you know, I covered this a little bit in the first podcast is, you know, I'm dealing with really poor soil. And so, you know, using the liquid products is, first of all, it's been uh, really easy to work with a lot easier than, you know, toting around, you know, tons of, uh, you know, probably hundreds of pounds of fertilizer on our farm. And, uh, you know, I can just, I know my ratios. I can mix everything up, throw it in the sprayer. I can go out and spray, and I'm probably cutting my my overall, you know, time for, for planting my food plots and fertilizing them probably, you know, in half or less than that. So that's been a huge thing. Um, another thing, too, is, you know, I, don't, I wanted to get away from using synthetic fertilizers, and, um, since Brad's products are carbon based, that's been huge for me with my really poor sandy soil is to be able to put more carbon in the ground. And, uh, I'm sure Brad can touch a little bit on that. We've talked quite a bit about that and just how much that's raising my organic matter as well as, you know, using cover crops in correlation with that. So, um, and we've used a couple other products, you know, there's a couple different types of calcium or two different types of calciums that we're using, uh, you know, there's a there's a uh, calcium we're using at planting, and there's also a pen cal, which is more, you know, to actually fix your uh, calcium levels in your soil. So, we've used both of those on on, uh, on my farm and uh, seen really good results with, with just about every product. Um, there's been a couple things that we've had to work through, you know, one of them being sprayer calibration. You know, we've talked a lot about, me and Brad have talked a lot about that. Um, I think that's the number one thing that I see, uh, you know, either the guys that I've given product to and they've tried, tried it out or just me when I first started trying it out is getting your calibrate your sprayer calibrated, right. And getting enough product, you know, actually down and on your soil and and on your plants. So hopefully it gives a good generalization of what I've been doing.
0: No, I think it did a, you did a great job there. And, uh, you know, good, good summary or summarization of kind of, you know, the things that you're dealing with. All right, Brad. I'm going to bounce over to you, and we're going to kind of go through. I want you to briefly talk, you know, about your business just just quickly, and then we're going to go through some FAQs, things that you're experiencing that you want to talk to you know potential clients or clients about, and get some of the basics or important bits of information out there that's going to help people deal with problem sets, etc.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so my name is Brad Harper. Uh, I own Harper Growing Solutions. We're out of Michigan, and I would say probably the biggest thing that we do is we analyze soil samples and we put together customized programs for, you know, anything, anyone, anywhere. Uh, We got people all the way from Maine to California to Florida, Minnesota, Texas. I mean, you name it. But that's kind of what I like to do is everybody has a different issue one way or another, And it's just really fun for me to be able to to talk with a person, figure out their issue, look at their soil sample, figure out what kind of equipment they have, and just kind of try to dial in the solution for them. And and just because everyone is so different, we're not really doing the same two things anywhere. Um, So it's a lot of fun and, uh, I mean, time-consuming one, and I think that's probably one of the biggest questions we get because we always are backed up. But that is probably the biggest reason why, because I do like taking the time with everybody and making sure that I understand kind of what everyone's going through and where they're at um, and, and trying to put together that customized program. So that does take some time. But that's basically what we do, and we have a variety of products for, you know, a lot of different issues. So kind of utilizing each one, um, I, I really like the the many different products, that way you can kind of pick your tool for the right job kind of a thing rather than a one-size-fits-all because then that either doesn't fix one of the issues or you got to put on so much of it to try to fix them all. It's just not very efficient. So that's kind of my whole thing in a nutshell. Um, and I guess touching on what Colin said, the FAQs, I think definitely sprayer calibration is, is huge because we get a lot of guys – And I'm going to say the majority is not calibrated. So even when they're spraying herbicides, I mean, it really doesn't matter what you're spraying. If you're not calibrated, then you're kind of guessing. And there's two ways that that can go. Either one, you're not going to put enough of a certain product on and not get the result you want, or B, you're putting too much on, and then you're wasting time and or most importantly money. So calibrating your sprayers is is huge. Um, we are actually just putting a, a bunch of information sheets on our website actually tomorrow. So that will be up for everybody. Uh, we are trying to work with a bunch of different people doing YouTube videos on how to calibrate. I don't know if that's something you want me to kind of touch on, uh, as fast as I can. Sure. It's up I, to you. I we would can like do you, that. Okay. Yeah, I would.
0: Yeah. I think it's important. Okay. Um,
2: so just a quick, easy way to do that. I tell everybody, fill up your sprayer. And if you have, regardless of what app you use, try to measure out a half acre. From what I've noticed, most apps are fairly accurate. So if you just mark out a half acre, if that's possible, if that's not, mark out a quarter acre. And then just go and spray water and keep an eye on your miles per hour. Keep an eye on your PSI on your sprayer. And just go cover that thing and just cover it once. Do your best to, you know, not overlap too much cover that thing once and wherever you end up, you can take a look at how many gallons you used across that area and then multiply it by whatever you need to in order to get one acre. So let's say most common, everyone has a 25 gallon sprayer, I'm gonna say. So if we use seven gallons out of that 25 gallon sprayer on a quarter acre, if we times that by four, that means however fast you are going, And however much PSI that you were using on that sprayer while you were doing that, times four, we're at 21 gallons per acre. So taking that, you can then convert anything you're spraying, whether that's glyphosate, which some guys are using ounces per gallon when they're not calibrated, you can then move into, I need two quarts per acre, and do the math in order to get whatever you need to spray. And then you'll be more efficient. You'll get a really good kill using that or like with our products, then you can really figure out how much, you know, how much liquid lime or how much foliar, or how much calcium you need per acre by doing that. And once you do that, you can keep those, you know, in a notebook. Some guys write it on a Sharpie on their sprayer, um, you know, miles per hour, X amount of PSI. It's there forever. Now you know, and then you can be super accurate and you're not really wasting any money then with too little or too less of product from that point on.
0: You know, I think it's important and the topic you brought up earlier about money, you know, we're, we're spending a fair amount of money on these products and I'm sure your products, they're not free, of course, and then we want to have the right volume, you know, spread across the landscape. You know, the same thing applies with some of the examples, you know, we had last go around, Colin, where, you know, I gave some examples of application, et cetera. You know, there are different, I guess, methodologies here. And I said, one of the suggestions I had in that discussion is applying the foliars multiple times over, maybe even in lower concentration to, I guess, constantly a- apply a resource to the plant. And I think that's important thinking through this whole calibration element of this application side of it, how you were going to apply it in the landscape, you know, what form, et cetera, you know, what equipment you have. And then, you know, being conservative or having a realistic you know, kind of ideology of what will happen as a result. So let me ask you this question, Brad. So you get a lot of people that buy your product and you're diagnosing individual issues and everyone, it's, you know, their soil type and how they've remedied in the past, how they've abused it or nurtured it. That, that's gotta be a whole gamut uh, discussion, but I'm sure you get through the weevils of each each individual topic. But what is the biggest question that you get How do I fix my soil and what do I use? I mean, how do you even, where do you even start in that equation uh, outside of a a soil sample?
2: Yeah. And that without a soil sample, that's about impossible to answer. (laughs) I get a lot of guys that kind of get frustrated with me because I don't have an answer. If there's not necessarily a question, if that makes sense, because without a soil sample, You are literally just shooting in the dark. So um, that is by far, first and foremost, once we have that information, then we can come to a, we can sit at the table, have a discussion, you know, what equipment do you have? What's this look like? What's your deer density? You know, we can start putting together cover crops and then just go down the list. But without that, it's, it is really hard to try to do that because then we're just doing generic rates generic rates of anything never really did anything for anybody and or was very efficient or economical. Um, and just guessing like that, I mean, I just, I don't like that at all. So, uh, I, I actually had a guy today that really was not very happy with me at all because I wouldn't give him rates on a thing other than the generic rates we just put on the bottle. And we kind of just do that just to have it there. I mean, it, most guys that we, you know, strongly encourage to have a soil sample and, And then we have something to base it off of. And not only that, but now you have a starting point. So two years, five years from now, you can revert back to that. And you can see, you know, the progress you're making and or some adjustments we might have to make because otherwise you just don't know. So I think that is definitely first and foremost. That's just so incredibly incredibly important to have that.
0: So let's go to... Let's go to another FAQ that you typically have. We did calibration. Let's go through another, another particular topic that you find being problematic with potential clients.
2: Yeah, I think um, probably one of the biggest questions that we get is guys are switching from granular fertilizer and, you know, typical conventional ag lime or pell lime, and they, they want to know kind of how the product works or how we come to the, conclusion of the rates that we give and it's it's fairly simple overall I mean number one when you look at granular fertilizers they're not very efficient and that's why you have to put down you know x amount of hundreds of pounds per acre because we're we're putting that much down just to get a small percentage to the plant you know most plants don't need very much to grow but when we have to put down that much just to get a little bit we're not being efficient so When we look at our fertilizer and we're at, you know, a gallon an acre or three quarts per acre, it seems like such a small amount, and it is, but the reason being is that our stuff is so readily available to the plants because the nutrients are protected. So with granular fertilizer, it's a salt-based product. The nutrients are not protected, meaning they can get in the soil and just – tie up with anything you think about a magnet just throwing a magnet out there it's going to find something to stick to so when we throw the granular fertilizer out we have no control over what happens we're just kind of hoping and praying that something works and that something sticks but with our product we can put it out and we don't have to worry about the tie-ups in the soil because that charge is protected so we're able to get in the soil and we're able to get taken up by the plant and now we can be that much more efficient And it's kind of the same concept with the liquid lime that you're applying, you know, a ton of, of ag lime per se, mainly for the on average six to 18 pounds of calcium carbonate in a whole ton. So you're spreading that whole ton. And for the most part, that dust that you see flying through the air, that's the product that's actually making the change because it's mainly about particle size. Mm -hmm. So When you put that ton of ag lime down, and depending on what mine is closest to you or where that's coming from, it's about 6 to 18 pounds on average throughout the U.S. of calcium carbonate in that ton. Well, we have a 14-pound calcium carbonate gallon of liquid lime. So, therefore, that's why we say it's basically equivalent to a ton of ag lime. And we can just be super efficient because of the particle size and we can get in there and make that reaction in the soil to change that pH very quickly and very efficiently. And and like I said, it's it's basically the same uh, same conversation. We're just being efficient and not having to worry about all the excess stuff that normally we do apply. We're shrinking that down and just being efficient with it.
0: Brett, here's a question for you. And this is this is an approach I think a lot of people take. You know, it's a, a, a property that's a long-term hold and they want to, based on their soil type, put down, you know, and, and pH value, put down two, 3,000 pounds of, of lime per, per acre. And in that, you know, it's depending on its mess size, et cetera, you know, the, the, the size of the, uh, the element, as it slowly infiltrates and becomes part of that soil structure it gives you some longevity and some capacity. And the argument has been, you know, is that more, maybe less efficient, but more long-term sustainable versus, you know, the liquid side of the equation? Um, what's your opinion on that? Because I hear that particular topic come up quite often.
2: Yeah, that does come up a lot. And, and that's where I think it really comes down to each individual. Because you might have a guy to where... Um, let's just use four or five pH for an example. That's super low. We see it a lot. If that guy with a four or five on one side of the scale, if if it's wide open and he can get a truck in there, that's great. I'm going to tell that guy, you're going to want to get a truck in there. Let's get some lime on. Totally fine because it is super cheap. Now, in other places, it's not so cheap and that we can go down that rabbit trail of where you're located and all those things. But let's just say it's fairly cheap to do that. Yes, let's do that because in the long run, if we can get that from a four or five up a little closer and then we just maintain with liquid, then that's going to be super efficient. We're going to be super cost effective and we're going to do a good job with that. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have guys that might be a four or five but they're back in the woods and cross a creek and up a hill and there's no other option other than hauling bags and bags and bags of petal lime and in that situation then it is up to the guy still but you probably are more effective and more efficient just using liquid and making that change even though it's more of an annual it's not near a two or three year change like an ag lime application would be but it's going to be more efficient in the long run and and probably more cost effective as well. So that's where the customization really comes in. And we do get that question a lot. And that's where it's like, okay, well, let's figure out exactly what's going on. Where are you, you know, how much does this cost? And let's go down the list of things to figure out what is truly best. But we do have a lot of guys that still use a traditional lime source, but we just maintain with that because even if you put ag lime down, let's just say that lasts for two or three years, then it starts going back down in pH. Well, we're still going to have to maintain with the liquid and maybe two years after that is when we go in with another batch of aglime. lime, you know what I mean? And, and we can kind of play that game of, uh, of the pendulum and just maintain with the liquid. And once we get super low, we'll add the ag lime, we'll come back up and then we can just adjust rates of liquid in between in order to make sure that every year, no matter what's going on, we're still doing a good job and having a good food plot.
0: So, Brad, I'm going to play a little bit of a devil here in this equation and, and ask you this separate question. I'm going to give you my example. So I have a property that has a pH of about 5.3, and that particular property this is a client property. That particular property we've been working on for years, and over the first two or three years, just applying – you know, an agricultural-based limestone that I, I don't know the mesh size exactly, but, you know, somewhat pulverized, right? It's, it's in powder form. Applying that at a, a certain rate interval, we, we got the pH right around 6.4, 6.5 was my main objective after a couple years. Now, that particular client has maintained that pH without applying any additional calcium, you know, carbonates or any type of liquid sprays. Is there instances in your experience where you can maintain that uh, initial dose and doses thereafter, at least getting up to a certain status of pH, where you may not have to apply, let, let's say, like a, a calcium carbonate? So calcium carbonate is the main reactive ingredient in lime. That's what's actually making the
2: reaction in the soil in order to change pH, correct.
0: Okay, great. And... In those instances, do you think that the the process of kind of maybe not tilling or, or you know adding variety of plants, etc., are kind of creating this kind of environment where you know it's it's self sustaining, it's it's almost self sufficient at that point? Um, have you seen that in any capacity where somebody's not had to they, they haven't experienced it degrading in in pH? over time and I know it's soil specific, but I ask this question because I see this a lot where folks are worried about this maintenance aspect of it. And maybe in some instances if you're taking these, you know, I guess chemical, you know, tests, you know, these soil tests, you're seeing that things don't change as frequently as you might suspect. And I know it's environmental specific, but what do you think is maintaining that on the landscape? What do you think the what do you think the trick is to kind of maintaining your pH? Yeah, I, I think that definitely varies. I mean, CEC is going to be a big one. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're
2: Sandy and that rain is coming down at, you know, let's just say 6.3 on average, um, and you're just washing that line through, if you get up to 7 but you're Sandy, that's going to be a whole different ball game than if you're, you know, at a CEC of 12 or 14 or, or go up the scale if you want. But that's going to be a huge um, – component as far as longevity. Uh, Number two, I think the biggest thing that we see is people that are using lime and are using synthetic fertilizers that most synthetic fertilizers are going to be pretty acidic. So you could, you know, get your pH up to where you want it, but then you're dumping on a few hundred pounds of synthetic fertilizers, granulars and you're doing that in the fall and then back in the spring and then you go to test your soil again and you thought you might have got up to 6.8, let's say, but all of a sudden you're, you only made a .2 jump and you went from a 6.1 to a 6.3 and you wonder what happened. Well, that's going to be a huge culprit of pH. So that's going to be probably, in my opinion, the biggest issue that we see um, that causes uh, the, main, the maintenance of it, if you will. But I think too, um, if you're running cover crops, you know, and you're you're taking care of your dirt, and you're not dumping out a bunch of synthetics, I think there is definitely a, a little bit longer term that you can see, but it it almost never fails that Mother Nature reverts back to its original state. So whether that be two years, whether that be five years, seven years, I think it does matter what you do in the time between that, but Every single instance so far that I've seen, it eventually reverts back. So uh, I think it's a matter of time, and there's just so many different variables that go into that. Now, not saying that you don't know, give up hope because you're going to be liming for the rest of your life. I'm not necessarily saying that either, but I think that there's just so many variables that there's a way that we can slowly but surely possibly reduce those rates. But at the same time, knowing that at the, at the end of the day, when we're making changes to the soil, that's man-made changes that, you know, is slowly but surely going to kind of go away.
0: Good. I appreciate that response. And I know it, it all depends on your circumstance. And I only brought that up to recognize, you know, some types of soils or some varieties of soil that may be more clay-based, You know, that maintenance may be a little bit different than sandy soil, et cetera, that that has a little more leaching to it. All right, Colin, I got a question for you. And, um, you know, you've been using Brad's products and you have, you know, your soil samples and testing that you've done. And we talked last time about your leaf response with some of the foliars that you're using. You know, what did you really think of the products? Like, how did you apply those in, in a smart way and how quickly did you see a rebound or response from the the plants that, that you were applying those those foliars on?
1: Yeah, so real quick, I wanted to back up. While you guys are on, you know, talking about pH and stuff, I've actually got my soil samples pulled up right here. And I just wanted to give a real quick example of some real-life, you know, data that me and Brad have um, from the past two years of using brad's products exclusively and this is no synthetic um fertilizers and this is no ag lime this is purely liquid lime now obviously like you guys already talked about this is you know situation by situation basis um but i just wanted to give you you know the listeners a little bit of an idea of what i've done on our property um you know just as a a starting point you know so as, as a starting point for uh i took a soil sample in uh 2021, had a soil pH of 5.3, uh, my CEC was 1.3, and I had organic matter of 1.3. And if I go to, this is two years later exactly, and uh, or within a couple of days, I'll say, 2023, and if I go to the same plot, we're looking at, uh, let's see here, pH... Of uh, 5.9 and a CEC of 5.7 and organic matter of 3.0. So wow, you can see right there. You know that was obviously it's always really exciting to actually see the results in the field. You know that's that's in that that basically goes directly to your question. Um, but it's also really cool to see that on an actual soil test also. Um, and so I think, I think that when I really started seeing the, the results, um, and the difference in using Brad's products was when I did several different trials on, you know, using his product, a half rate, a full rate. And that really gave me, it gave me an example of, okay, this is how much this product is actually, uh, you know, going into the plant and actually making a difference in plant growth, plant health, stuff like that. And I think that might be something if, if, if you guys, you know, the listeners are wanting to try a product or something like that, that has to be kind of a situation by situation thing because you just don't know every soil is different, every, you know, deer density. These are all different things. So having a starting point, just like our soil samples, I think it's also good to have a spot in your food plots or wherever you're applying this. To have a spot where you don't do any product, and then you also do obviously a spot where you've got full rates of a product, or you could always do a half rate and then a full rate. And I think you really get to see the difference in plant growth, in you know attraction, you know deer attraction. That's another thing that I've noticed too, which can be can be a bad thing for some guys because you know we can't keep the deer off the plots. But um, so that that's one of the biggest things. You know, probably by that second year and I know Brad's talked a little bit about this, but once you you start, especially in your sandy, poor soils, once you start getting that carbon built up in your soil, you'll really start to see the difference, you know, and obviously, you know, you'll actually see the difference in your plant growth, but then just pulling roots out of the ground, you know, looking at your soil, stuff like that, and then obviously looking at your soil samples year to year, that's when I've seen the biggest difference. Now, obviously, I've been using... Higher diversity cover crops and and trying to keep something something growing in these plots, you know, just about 365 days a year. So you know that's just a little bit of an example, and hopefully that kind of answers your question.
0: Yeah, and I'll 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 add to this a little bit, and I want to just you know capitalize on one particular point is you know finding deficiencies, right? We're talking about chemical deficiencies, and then you know remedying those with, with some application of a foliar or otherwise. But the the test to your point, Colin measuring, you know, the resistance to certain things, yep. and then also watching the regrowth. And this is a, a function, in some cases, of the amount of phosphorus available to that particular plant. And I explained earlier some of the techniques that I use. Also, we, we've talked about this in prior podcasts, BRICS refractometer, measuring the, the sucrose level of particular plants at certain times. There's, and I'll, I'll probably get into this more so, you know, later, later uh, after after the new year, talking about kind of techniques and measuring a little bit more about folders, how we do them, etc. But you know, there's there's a bit here, and that resilience piece of it is really really important. It's not just looking at the plant's greenery, right? Um, it's 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 coloration. It's looking at the whole aspect of the plant, the size of the plant, you know, how it deals with disease, etc. So I just want to kind of throw that out there to Colin's point because I think he he kind of nailed it, and I just think there's a few other points there. All right, Brad, I want to do uh, another FAQ with you, another problem uh, answer kind of session. So give me another issue that you deal with with clients and and how you remedy it.
2: Yeah, actually, uh, we had a very good example of that yesterday. Um, So one of the kind of the questions we get is about mixing. And I mean, go down the list of the all the questions that you could possibly think about when you start introducing liquid products and you're spraying Roundup one day and next day you're spraying a liquid lime and a fertilizer and a calcium product. You know, mixing with our stuff is, uh, it's very thick. The liquid lime is obviously very concentrated and the fertilizers and calcium all being carbon based. There's a lot of carbon there and that's kind of why they do what they do But at the same time, that's why we do have to take a little extra care in mixing. We normally will put some water in our sprayer and get that recirculating. We will mix in a five-gallon bucket. So say throw three gallons of water, throw your liquid lime in, hit that with a mixer or a drill or a stick, something to kind of get that into solution and pour that into the tank. Now, this doesn't just work for ours because even with you know Roundup, I don't, whatever you're spraying. It helps to make sure you do a good job mixing. Um, some sprayers do not have a recirculation you know, system. So if you dump that in and you're counting on all the bumps and stuff that you hit when you're driving out to your plot to mix, you might not get an even kill with Roundup or uh, even if you're just using Clefidim on a Clover plot or Butyrak or maybe you're spraying Quinstar on your switch. That definitely pays to take your time and mix your products separately, pour it in, do a really good job to make sure that's completely evenly distributed and in solution before you go out. So that's, that's one question we get a lot of and I always kind of add in the herbicides because it's just not simply a a question for me. That's a question for everything we're spraying. So that's one thing. And then the second kind of part to that is uh, when you're doing foliars, and this was the, the question that I got yesterday. Um, uh, there was a guy who went and sprayed Roundup and put his sprayer away. A couple weeks later, he wanted to do a foliar application on his brassicas. They kind of started turning purple. Um, I don't remember how much triple 19 he put out uh, or per acre. I don't remember that exactly. But some granular fertilizer went out at planting, and they were turning purple. They were turning yellow. He had got some of our foliar product and wanted to go put that out. So he mixed that in the tank. Went and sprayed it, and he calls me about seven days later saying that it's toast. And that's where, regardless of what you're spraying, I don't care if it's strictly just Plot Dr. foliar, if it's a calcium. I mean, it doesn't matter. When you get done, you should always rinse because you don't want any residue in your nozzles and your lines, anything. And that really is, uh, I'm going to say, greatly expounded when you go from spraying a herbicide to trying to fertilize your food plots as they're actively growing. And that's just something that I, I guess, I don't think I've talked about enough and I don't think that's talked about much of anywhere, but anytime you get done spraying something, you're going to have residue. I mean, these plastic tanks are going to soak up some of that, the rubber lines. So it's just like, you know, when you get done, you should just run some water through there, clean that thing out, put it away. And uh, I think that's one of the things that we just haven't touched on enough and not done a good enough job talking about.
0: Brad, what would you recommend for somebody who wants to put in, you know, I know there's powder forms that essentially neutralize the tanks. Do you think that's a good idea? Like a wettable powder?
2: I, um, I, I think that overall... Um, any tank cleaner is going to be beneficial. Now, two, when you get done, I don't care what you're using, literally if you just fill that thing all the way up with water, if you have agitation and you're letting that agitate and you spray some stuff out through, you know, the the boom, the nozzles, what have you, that's most likely going to do a uh, plenty good enough job. But, I, at the same point, I don't blame guys for using tank cleaners. I normally do as well. Uh, It just keeps it clean and it completely eliminates the residue and uh, like the liquid lime, the calcium. I mean, you can get buildup in the bottom of the tanks or on the screen if you don't take care of that. So I'm not saying you, you're, you would never need a tank cleaner. I'm saying that it normally is a good idea, but that's also something that, one bottle of tank cleaner is probably going to last the average food plotter, you know, a few years to where at the end of the day, it's a pretty cheap cost to have that extra security. And two, it's not like, you know, the pumps are super cheap on the sprayers. It's not like those nozzles or screens are super cheap or easy to obtain. So just, you know, running a little cleaner and some extra water through there, that's just going to extend the life of your whole sprayer and make sure that you never have any issues. So you know, taking that little extra precaution is not going to hurt one bit.
0: Yeah, I think that's really good. And I'll throw this out. And for all of you that probably have listened to me talk about different things, I have a sprayer for herbicide and then a sprayer for foliars. And that's, you know, an ATV-based sprayer. And then I have backpack sprayer, one for foliars, one for herbicide. So they're labeled, right? I still clean either one of them. And, uh, you know, it's a simple way for me to keep organized and it's allows me to be a little more time efficient because there'll be some instances where I'll be working on, you know, one particular job and then I have to switch and and use, you know, my other sprayer, for example, Uh, just options for me, it works, works for me. And, and I'll be honest with you, the backpack sprayer, the four gallon ones that I use, you know, they break every every couple of years and I just, they're throwaways for me. They're a hundred dollar. I just throw them away. And, uh, you know, it, for, for me and my business, that's, that's not a big deal, but you can maintain those by parts firm. Um, it just, to me, it's kind of a, 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 ends up being kind of a throwaway product. And I, I break those more frequently than I probably should. Cause they're, they're, they're not, they're not all well-designed in my opinion. All right. Um, we're getting to about 40 minutes here. So a little bit farther into this. And, uh, I just want to kind of end, you know, with anything, you know, that you both think is, is important, you know, we, we just did a good podcast and I want to kind of compliment that with, you know, there's, there's other products out there and Brad, you offer those. And I think people should explore your offerings, but is there anything else you want to leave the audience with on, on something they can do right now, you know, before hunting season to improve their food plots? Um, yeah, I think,
2: um, I'm going to say one of the bigger issues I see has nothing to do with what I do, but I recommend so many times is guys will plant. And let's say right now, early September, they're looking at their food plot. Okay. Maybe we didn't get great germination. Maybe the seed was too deep. Maybe we got a flock of turkeys that came through and cleaned us out. You know, there's a lot of different things, but I think right now at this point in time, one major thing to look at is if your food plot is not full, We can always throw rye, and I always like to throw a little crimson with it because that way we can maximize our space because most people don't have as many acres of food plots as we want, me included. And it's like, okay, we need to maximize our space. So if we got a few gaps here and there because of germinations or turkeys or what have you, now is just you still have enough time that you can throw rye. You can add crimson with it. Um, depending on where you're at in the country, you can throw some radish just to fill in those gaps to maximize that space. I see that happen so often that we have uh, maybe lighter than normal. And obviously that's not ideal and it's not necessarily any error, but one thing or another, it's just like, shoot, that's not as thick as I was hoping. Well, we can still fix that and there's enough time to do so. So I always encourage guys to do that. And especially with the rye, cause that's going to come back next spring and be able to put that back in the dirt for soil building. Same thing with the crimson, you know, that's something right now that can make a huge change in your food plot, even though it might not seem like a big deal, but you know, maximizing that tonnage per acre is, is a big deal at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good, good piece. Colin, what about you? Anything from you? Yeah,
1: I think for sure building off of that, I, I just finished doing that on uh, on a client property today. We had some really good rains coming in. Uh, I think that's that's one of the key things that I have learned. You know, if you're layering rye, depending on, you know, what your foliage dens- density is, you know, how thick your food plot is. Um, if you can try to time it before rain, you know, if you get a good rain, especially because, you know, you're not probably typically running a cult to pack or anything over it. Um, you know, if you can try to time it before rain, I know it's hard for some guys, around are their property. Um, that seems to be you know really good so you can get that good germination out of that rye. Um, because I know I've had that those struggles where I you know I end up broadcasting 100 pounds of rye and you're hard to get any germination, so it's it's tough. And then you know, adding off that, I've you know, I think now I'm at like 200 pounds per acre putting down a rye, and that's a little bit extreme. Um, you know, for this type of situation that I'm doing, I'm really trying to, you know, fill in, you know, almost every square inch, you know, of, of ground I can. And, the, you know, like Brad said, that Crimson Clover is, is, uh, great at doing that also and had great success with Crimson Clover. Um, so yeah, I mean, thanks a lot for, uh, having me on here. Hopefully you guys had some good takeaways. Um, you know, I want to thank Brad for, uh, me a lot of information over the last couple of years, and, and Brad is really good with. If you guys have questions or, or you you want to get a soil sample, he's really good with working through these different problems and finding solutions. You know, me and Brad have uh, had a lot of uh, conversations, and he's always striving to, uh, you know, keep improving and keep finding new ways to do things. So, you know, and friend, you know what's best for uh, each individual client. So, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I'm happy to have you both on tonight, and, um, you know, hopefully, you know, Colin will have you back. We'll listen to, you know, maybe maybe even have you on after uh, hunting season to see see what happened with you this year. And then, Brad, we're going to probably, hopefully, and, I, and I'll just caveat those, you know, it depends, but we'll probably do a series um, about this in more depth, and we'll look through, you know, the process we go through of analyzing soil samples and, you know how to apply some changes. I'm going to give you some interesting techniques that I use. Yeah, you know, that may be in support of Brad's, but just you know my opinion on how I attack things. So that be that'll be prior to the spring period, so you can start thinking about how to mend your soil correctly before you know we get to growing season and you can plan ahead. So that that'll be our attack uh, sequence here going forward. But I want to thank both of you for taking time out of your night, and uh, I really appreciate. Uh, both you and um, looking forward to talking again soon.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I appreciate that, and I like that. I, I'm uh, super excited about doing a series on that and trying to answer, you know, as many questions as we can. And and I think Colin is, is probably one of the better examples because his soil started out so poor, and we've made some very good headway. And I think that's something, you know, we can really expound upon and, and, and expand not only north to south east to west but it's just there's so many different things we can do and i'm excited about that try to answer some questions and and that is uh he's got a lot of experience there and and we really did a good job at his place so that'd be cool to to do that and i'm excited for it so thank you for having me uh it's always a good time talking with you guys thank you
0: all right guys we'll talk again soon maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out
1: whitetaillandscapes.com.